Barukim Habayim, welcome to the Bet Midrash for Parsha Shmini. And we are headed into Shabbat Para, which is the Shabbat of the Red Heifer. So lots of purification, lots of renewal, that all goes down this week, or shall we say going up. So without further ado, I want to get into our blessing because we're going to dedicate our Torah study to Hashem. And we're also going to dedicate our Torah study tonight and our prayers and our and our minds to our fellow Yidden across the globe, because we are one big family and we got to start thinking and acting like it. So with the prayers and the, the reading of what we're learning and studying tonight, may we remember all of our mishpaka across the globe, because we all need to be gathered in to the new Yerushalayim Mashiach now. Page 17 in your Sidur is the English. The Hebrew is on page 16. Barukata Adonai Eloheinu Melakaolam Asher Kitshanu Bemitzvotah Vetzibanu La Sok Be Divre Torah Veha Arevna Adonai Eloheinu Et Divre Torah Teka Befinu Ufiamka Beit Yisrael Venie Anaknu Vetze Etze Enu Vetze Etze Eamka Beit Yisrael Kulano Yodesh Meka Velom de Torateka Lishma Baruch Ata Adonai Hamlame Torah Leamo Yisrael Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melakaolam Asher Bachar Banu Miko Amin Ve Natan Lanu et Torato Baruch Ata Adonai Noten Ha Torah Mashiach Now. So I want to stay on this page because this week we read about the death of Nadav and Abihu which is uh, tragic, but it's also sanctifying to the name of Hashem. And it also brought back Hashem's presence among us like it was before the golden calf. So all of the opinions and the commentaries that are like, no, they were wrong. Yes, they were so right. They're completely righteous. They're even more righteous than Moshe and Aharon. Well, I want to take us to a new source I want to share with us this week is what is known as the Orthodox Jewish Bible. And this really is going to come out of the fact that uh, Shlomo, may he live and be well, was um, sharing from this particular book uh, last, last Shabbat. And I was just like, yeah, probably need to go ahead and, and look at this. So... Anyway, this is one of the ways that I was able to actually learn Ivrit, and um, it has the transliteration, and there is also a glossary in the back. Let me see here if I can hide the video panel. There it is. Okay, and hide that for a second. Okay, so when you go into this, I have some bookmarks and I have my glossary bookmark. So if you come across any word in Ivrit that you do not know, this is what it looks like. So you can find it by alphabetical order and learn some Hebrew while you are studying the Torah portion. So this is one of uh, my favorite things about this particular translation. All right, get back over here to the parasha. 
I want to go to where Nadav and Abihu are mentioned. It says in Vayikra chapter 10, and Nadav and Abihu, the B'nai Aharon, each took his censer and put Aish therein and put Ketorit, which is incense there, uh, thereon, and offered Aish Zara, strange unauthorized fire before Hashem, which he commanded them not. So just by looking at this one particular verse in our Torah portion this week, you have a lot of things going on. The first thing is, where did they get the fire from? And the second thing is, uh, they're, they're doing an incense offering, which only the Kohen Hagadol does. And if you remember from the Drosh notes, there's actually a lottery that is done to, to see who actually gets that responsibility for that day. And they only get to do it once. And then you have the fact that both of them are just like, oh, yeah, both of us, we're just going to do it. Then it was unauthorized because the the interesting part here is that we're still in the inauguration ceremony. So we, we have officially reached the eighth day. There has been no kind of entry into the tabernacle whatsoever as far as like uh, the, the services are open now. So let's go ahead and do our thing that Hashem tells us to do because the, the tabernacle was covered in the cloud. And then what's been going on is Moshe wearing all white Learn that in the Midrash Rabbah for this parsha. He's wearing an all-white garment. And then he, hopefully everyone's been able to see this uh, screen share that I've been doing. But um, he's been wearing an all-white garment this whole time and showing Aharon and his sons how to do the service. So without any kind of green light go, you have Nadav and Abihu being like, oh, yeah, let's just get this thing going. So then it's not only that, we also have the fact that it's considered Zara. It's considered strange and, ortho and unauthorized. There's a whole tractate of Talmud known as Avoda Zara. And stop screen share. And this tractate is a lot about idolatry. And, and things that are contrary to worshiping Hashem and following his prescription and protocol. So among many other commentaries, which Bezrat Hashem, uh, we will be focusing in on one particular aspect of marriage. These two individuals were not married, and the sages even go so far as to say that they were despising of it. And um, that's kind of crazy because we were having our family throwdown this past Shabbat. Uh, a lot of people were bringing up 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we were talking about Shaul's um, opinion because he, he does say, this is just kind of where I'm at with it, that he actually encouraged people not to get married, which Judaism really does not teach. And so not to get into argument or anything like that, but just to kind of lay out the, the map, if you will, on where in the world is marriage in the realm of Judaism and what an apropos time that, you know, Nadav and Abihu are putting themselves in this boat of like, we're going to serve Hashem to the fullest, but we're not about marriage. We're not about that life. 
So, um, but anyway, I want to open us up this way because right after we say the bracha for studying the Torah, if you go down the page, it quotes Talmud Shabbat 127a. These are things that are equivalent to studying Torah. So you may feel like, oh my gosh, I'm short on time. I did not get to study. I just can't seem to get and sit down and look at my books. Uh, I got so much stuff going on in my life right now. I just didn't get time to do it. Well, check out the other things that are equivalent to studying the Torah. It says, these are the precepts whose fruits a person enjoys in this world, but whose principle remains intact for him in the world to come. They are honor due to father and mother. Is anyone having to take care of parents? Is anyone uh, checking in on their parents or keeping their parents in mind for how they uh, com compose themselves throughout their daily actions, their daily lives? You know, what are things that your parents taught you that you're making good on in your day-to-day -day living. That right there is equivalent to Torah study, any of those things. And that's just a few examples. Then we know that's commandment number five, right? And that's connected to long life. And we say in the blessing after studying Torah, he has implanted eternal life within us. So an abundance of life is flowing through the fact that we're honoring our mother and our father, which is like Torah study. And then you think about King Shlomo's words about honor the words, hear the words of your father, honor the words of your mother, you know, and things like that. Do not scorn them. These are the words of Torah. And then it goes on to say that acts of kindness and we talked a lot about this. This is one of the three pillars that uphold the world. You have Torah study, you have prayer, you have acts of kindness. Well, prayer is also the fact of meditation. And it's also the fact of singing. Maybe you do other things that draw you and elevate you closer to Hashem that are like creative outlets or things that you would see done in the temple. Like we saw that, you know, the Levites, are doing so many different things. All of what is done in the temple is known as avoda, worship of Hashem. So anything along those lines, whether you're writing things out, writing a letter to God, whether you're, you're speaking out the blessings, whether you're saying prayers before and after you eat, you know, davening Shemona Esrei, any of these things that you're doing, that's under the pillar of avoda. So avoda, worshiping Hashem. And then you have the fact that there's acts of kindness. So this can be literally anything that is something that would elevate someone, esteem someone, honor someone, bring uh, relief and, and joy even to people in most cases, or in some cases, you know, uh, thinking about someone and sending them a little gift or a little note. These are all things that are known as acts of kindness. So if you're doing any of that, it's exactly like you're studying Torah, or it's considered as if you're studying Torah. Then early attendance at the house of study, which is the Bet Midrash. So we had a couple of people show up pretty early, 
because uh, Bruger Shem, I got the link out on time this week. But uh, yeah, so early attendance to the Bet Mentors, get you some. So uh, that totally happened for a couple of individuals tonight. And then, and then, uh, so that's the Bet Mentors study of the House of Study, morning and evening. And then we have hospitality to guests. So if you have opened your home or if you have allowed someone to just kind of, um, you know, be in your space to, um, to maybe you've housed them or something like that because uh, they needed a place to crash is what they say in this generation. I need a place to crash, man. Can I be on your couch? You know, all those kinds of things. Um, they don't have anywhere else to go and you open up your guest room, all these types of things. That's equivalent to door study. So the next one, visiting the sick. So we have a beautiful thing known as the Magin Yishenu prayer wall. Anytime people are inquiring about previous prayer requests that they may or may not have heard an update on, that's along the levels and along the lines of being able to visit the sick because what if you're too far away or things like that? Well, we, we basically as Magin Yishenu have a virtual Erev for lack of a better terms, where we can all be close to one another digitally. Some of us physically live close and some of us physically get to come to the shul. So if any of us needed anything, you know, we do have the opportunity to physically go visit, but virtually definitely have the opportunity to do that. This is your, your direct messages that you can send to people, phone calls, text messages. These things are equivalent to Torah study. Now, one of the most amazing things that I came across this week is that if you really want your Torah study to become a part of you and to really consider yourself to have studied the Torah, then you need to have your fellow man in mind, in your heart as beloved and esteemed as the same way that Hashem would. That doesn't mean necessarily that you just love everybody and that you're just oozing over like, oh, this person is so amazing. Obviously, you know, there's things that may have happened, you know, broken relationships. Maybe you haven't seen someone in a while. Maybe you haven't been on good terms with people and things like that. But in the general context of when you see another human being, especially one of the household of faith, how, how do you hold this person in your heart? And that is uh, one of the things that we have to, to be mindful of. So this was from Pakad David on the festivals, which is a beautiful source to take you through getting ready for the Yom Tov, good insights and things like that. But it was basically bringing this point up that if you don't love your fellow as you love yourself, then you're not really loving Hashem. And that's a hard pill to swallow sometimes because, you know, we as flawed human beings, how in the world are we supposed to do that? You know, when you think about how Yochanan wrote it, how can you love Hashem who you don't see when you can't love your brother who you do see? And you're just like, man, come on, Yochanan. Give me a break, bro. <laughs> you know, right? So these kinds of things. But it was just really interesting because the time that we're in right now is Purim to Pesach. And everything that happened at Purim was like a family reunion, if you will, because we went from being scattered all across Persia 
to like, oh my gosh, we're going to be wiped out and annihilated. Um, Hashem and Hashem is like, oh, you're fasting. Oh, you're, you're together. You're one mind, one heart. And we were so much so elevated in that, that not only were we not a lot annihilated, but we were also drawn closer to Hashem so much so that the sages bring down what we were forced to accept at Mount Sinai during the giving of the Torah. We now joyfully and willingly, freely accepted during Purim. So we completed the giving of the Torah at that point because of the, the, the connection and the unity that we began to strive in. And then this is the energy that's moving us into Pesach, which when we were in Egypt, when we were leaving, we were able to leave a place that we all knew and probably treasured dear in our heart. And we entered into the same circumstances. Where are we going? Uh, what's next? Uh, my food is starting to run out. This is the only pair of clothes I've, I've packed. Maybe some people had extra change of clothes, but those clothes wore out during the journey. But when Hashem gave us clothes, those clothes didn't wear out. Those shoes didn't mess up. And when Hashem gave us food in the wilderness, it never ran out. The only time the food ran out was when we decided, um, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty. And it's like, bro, you're getting manna every, every morning. There's a rock that's giving out rivers of living water. What do you mean you're hungry and thirsty? Clearly something is wrong here. So all of these different things, we were all put in the same boat. And then we crossed through the Yom Suf. We crossed through the Sea of Reeds. And then we saw those who enslaved us and caused so much misery and pain in our lives. We saw them perish and physically inanimate, not able to move anymore. And they were dead on the seashore. So there was nothing else holding us back from truly being with Hashem. And we went through that crazy transition together. So still surreal to us. It didn't really sink in because what ended up happening, Marba and Masa, you know, striving in contention with Hashem. And then the battle of Amalek, you know, he just showed up out of nowhere and just was like, boom, I'm, I'm in this. Like, you guys don't even know what you want, but I know what you need. And that's the crazy thing about Amalek. You may be thinking, I know my purpose, I know my goal, I know my passion, I know what Hashem is calling me to do, I'm with my mishpacha, but Amalek is like, are you really sure? Who does this sound like? This sounds exactly like the Nakash. Did Hashem really say that you're going to die if you eat from the tree? Like, if you just touch it, if you just look at it? I mean, you know, y'all are like fresh out of Mitzrayim, you're headed towards Mount Sinai. Do you really have to go to that mountain? You know, he's going to give you the Torah. Like, it's going to cause you to become immortal and like death will be removed from the world. You'll bring the temple. You'll bring Mashiach. You'll renew all of creation. But I mean, is that really something we need to do right now? I mean, come on, man. You know, it's nice out here. Well, kind of when you're following a shim, it is. But if you're not, snakes are going to get you. Clouds are going to go away. You'll get thirsty. You'll get hungry. I mean, so, I mean... Watch, just go back to Egypt. That You know what that is. You're, you, you can naturally do what you need to do there. Here, you got to hold yourself to a standard. Why do you want to do that? 
Furthermore, Amalek is like, I just want to abuse you. I have a, a family grudge that I can now fulfill because if we take you out now, we can actually take the land because the condition of having Eretz Israel is you have to go through the crucible of exile first. And Esau knew that, and he was like, the, the fulfillment at the covenant between the parts is that there's 430 whole years. After that 430 years, then you can go into the land of milk and honey and everything can be hunky-dory. Esau's like, why don't I just let somebody else do that? I'll go chill over here at Mount Seir. And then once that 430-year little condition and spell wears off, now let's just go ahead and take those people out and then I can go ahead and take the cake. And this led to Esau, his son, and his grandson to ultimately Amalek being like, okay, I'm now born. It's been 430 years. Now's the time. And the crazy thing is, is Hashem is like, Look at what the enemy is showing you. The enemy is showing you patience and waiting and knowing the times, knowing the seasons. This is time for Yisrael to be born, to take dominion in the world, to bring life, to be a light to the nations. And Amalek's like, oh, it's time for that. Well, it's time for me to do what I want to do. So I'm going to go and I'm going to do it without any reserve, which I think is just absolutely crazy that they have more uh, willpower than we do sometimes. But this is the challenge that we have to always face and stand up to, which is why when we flow with the Torah portion each week, flow with the Yom Tov that we're presented with, continue to repent and draw as close as we can to Hashem, we are granted help from heaven to do so, so that we can stand up and we can defeat Amalek. But the ultimate way to defeat Amalek is through us doing this together, staying focused on the prize, the, the perfecter and author or finisher of our faith. That's what we have to do. And then Amalek is like, he can't stand against that, which is why, how did we defeat the, the Amalekites the first time? Yehoshua or Moshe on the mountain and Yehoshua with the sword on the field. So you have to have not only the Mashiach, but you have to have the Torah, you have to have the mitzvot, and you have to be walking in your truth every single day. So all of that is connected to what I'm bringing down here as far as um, this, uh, this uh, excerpt from Shabbat 127a, because we were on visiting the sick and just talking about, you know, inquiring of one another, keeping each other beloved in our hearts, you know, trying to do our best to um, to just check on people and to uh, to care for them. So the next part is providing for a bride. Now, I want you to think about out of all the things that we're talking about. Now we're going to talk about a, a couple that's getting married. So if marriage didn't have any kind of um, weight at all in Judaism or Torah, why in the world is it one of the things that's so important that to set up a marriage is equivalent to studying the Torah? So this was kind of something that was uh, mind boggling as far as the context goes, because 
we all know, or I don't know if we all know, but those of us who have gotten married, it's pretty expensive. It can be anyway, but it takes, it takes some resources. It takes some planning. There's a lot of things that go on to get ready for a wedding. And so to be able to, as a community, come alongside that couple and be like, okay, listen, do you have things for your house? You know, like wedding showers. Um, listen, uh, you know, like money uh, for maybe honeymoon, uh, getting them uh, things that they can uh, be rejoicing in in the wedding. They talk about the fact of rejoicing the bride and groom during their celebration. Jewish weddings, in antiquity anyway, customarily last for seven days. And you try to have bread and wine so that you can say the birkat hamazon, the blessing after meals, so that you can recite this sheva brachot, which is known as the seven blessings. Which if you think about the seven times seven aspect of that, you are really trying to set this couple up for success. So, I mean, it's a communal effort every time there is a bride. And then you think about the fact that Jeremiah brings down the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will be heard in the sound in the hills of Jerusalem, Judea, during the, the, the coming back of everything, the Geula. So the whole thing about a marriage is like a foreshadow of the final redemption. And so as we are partaking of making sure the bride has what she needs. It's like we're trying to set ourselves up for being the bride of Hashem when that day comes that we'll finally be completely united with him. The Shekinah revealed and brought back to the new Yerushalayim and everything. I mean, it's crazy. And it's like, this is Torah study. So Torah study is like this Geula uh, environment, really. Because if you think about visiting the sick, the sages even bring down in the Talmud that whoever visits them, they take away a 60th of their illness. So if 60 people visit that one particular person, it takes away all of their sickness. Then you got the fact of doing acts of kindness and all these things in a world that is heaven on earth. Everyone trying to do the best that they can to uplift someone, make someone smile. That's completely not what, what's reality today, but through us continuing to increase little by little, baby step, week by week, we're breaking that a reality. And the more we do that, the more Amalek is like, his voice gets quieter, lower. Eventually it will go away. It will never return again. So then we have escorting the dead, which is attending to someone at their levaya which is interesting that a funeral service is called a levaya because you're really elevating that person. You're taking care of someone's corpse, you know, which is considered holy and sanctified to Hashem because the fact that we're given our bodies as a gift to be a chariot of God's presence in the world. And so the fact that we would attend someone to make sure that their body is properly laid to rest and not only brings comfort to their soul, but it shows Hashem that we actually care about his image. You know, there's even a, a, Torah, a portion in the Torah and De Deuteronomy and Devarim that talks about if there's a body hanged on a tree, that it needs to be taken down before sunset because that's the image of the king hanging up. And we should not be defaming and defiling the king like that. So now 
another aspect of making ourselves beloved humans to one another is the fact of how are we treating each other in death when someone passes away if we can treat someone with that amount of dignity and respect when they are no longer here with us how much more so should we be treating them with all that dignity and respect while they're here with us and then it goes on to say absorption in prayer like you're literally just to the point where all you can see is prayer all you are doing is just you're just praying like you're instantly connecting with Hashem um, I was reading this somewhere too and I think uh, hopefully it'll be in the Josh notes to source it out but there's a, a commentary that brings down the fact that it's uh, from Lakute Sukkot actually so um, to the uh, to the uh, to the credit of the Rebbe Alava Shalom because he is actually the one uh, who was speaking and his his followers were recording his talks the same way that Mashiach Yeshua's followers recorded his talks and we got the gospels. So the, the whole thing about Lakute Sikot is like they were following their Rebbe around and like trying to document as best they can all of his drashot. So in there was bringing down the fact that we literally have a, in a moment, we can instantly connect with the divine and change reality. So if you are having a bad day, if just things aren't going well, where's your connection? Have you connected with your father who is in heaven to bring down a newness to your reality? Why is that important? Because Hashem renews creation constantly, perpetually, every single day. Even each of these moments that we're in class right now, they're new moments. Hashem is renewing all of creation every moment right now and just perpetually doing that. So we get to link in and connect with that, you know, but we have to sometimes be, you know, take, take a step back. We have to have people that we're accountable to that check in with us and be like, hey, are you okay? Things going all right? You had a good day? You had a bad day? Okay, Baruch Hashem. There's a blessing for hearing bad news in the Siddur. It's on the same page, I think, anyway, where you recite the blessing for the rainbow and the lightning and the thunder, because we had a little bit of that this week. And my goodness, Mike and Shane was all over it on, hey, everybody okay? You okay over there? North side? Holler. You know, like, y'all good? Okay, south side? Check. Okay. I was just like, wow, like roll call going on up in here. So those types of things are equivalent to studying the Torah. And then it says, bringing shalom between man and his fellow. You know, Yeshua Mashiach said that blessed are those who are peacemakers. They shall become sons of God. So now you have a whole nother thing of the equivalent to Torah study is being a son of God, being a person who makes peace in the world. And remember, peace is made as much as it depends on you. Because you can think about people, especially if they are, uh, your enemy, if they are outside of Torah, if they are just uh, people that, you know, are just having a rough time. Sometimes you try to reach out to them like, dude, if you say one word to me, you're like, bro, sorry, I don't even know you. And it's like, yeah, you don't know me. You know, sometimes people are so on edge. It's like, sorry, I was just trying to be nice, you know, trying to wave, you know, open the door for you. Don't open my door. You know, you're like, okay. 
So anyway, that's that's fine. We're we're human beings. Remember, we're flawed. We have things that we're supposed to be repairing. Well, guess what? Some people don't want to repair. And that could be just for a moment. Because remember, time, time changes things. Our emotions are like, you know, Texas weather, my gosh. <laughs> you know, like, wasn't it just spring like 24 hours ago? Now it's like winter, stormy, like what just happened? It's like, oh yeah, it's like our emotions. They, they just go crazy. So uh, since we talk about wearing your heart on your sleeves, right? So it's like constantly changing clothes. Like, why are you doing all these clothes changes? It's going to be a lot of clothes to wash. But anyway, so next, the final thing here on this page is that it says, and the study of Torah is equivalent to them all. Truly studying the Torah is truly being engaged and connected to this world. Not that you're befriending the world and you're putting the world ahead of Hashem, but like you're literally in it, but you're not of it. You're present. You're available. You're approachable. That's a hard thing to do because sometimes there are things in life that you're just like, man, I, I really wish I didn't have to do this right now. For me, sometimes it's chores. I'm like, oh my gosh, there are so many chores to do. I have other things that I want to get done, you know, but it's things like that. It could be not only chores, it could be all sorts of who knows what, like looking for a new job. Like who wants to do that? Right. Especially if you want to do it well, that's like a full time job itself. You're like, I am hired. I'm looking for a job. That's my job. Do it eight hours a day. Thank you. You know, Hashem, hurry up. So anyway, all these different things. But yes, you're being engaged in Torah study as you're doing these things. And really, one of the coolest things, if when you start to really keep Torah rolling around in your mind a lot, especially those things that impact you from each Torah portion, try to keep a memory bank of those things. And you'll start to see crazy connections where you'll go through something in life, you'll do some tasks, you'll meet some person, you'll, you know, whatever you get to do, um, you'll find that, oh, that's kind of like this in the Torah. And it's just like, it's so crazy, because the Torah is life. So therefore, if we're not engaged in living in life, we're just kind of like, looking at the, the instruction manual and not even like putting anything together. So um, may we not be that way. Okay, so anyway, I just wanted to bring these things down because it, it's really important to, to know understanding and backdrop and foundation and fundamentals in Judaism of so many different things that are a part of our life that Hashem has actually given to us to uphold and do and uh, be caretakers for. And I wanted to really speak on the marriage point this week because it was a really beautiful discussion to really get a Torah balance. Everything about what I was uh, looking at with marriage this week in Nadav and Abihu is all about balance, which if that sounds a lot like Musar, then Baruch Hashem, that's what it should be. Because if you think about when we read in the Talmud, one rabbi is saying this, another rabbi is saying this, Tosafot is saying this, and it's like, are y'all arguing or like, what is going on? It's like, no, we're just putting more pieces on the table. So it sharpens and strengthens our mind. And so we have critical thinking, 
We have um, the, the way to, to put things together because we should be bringing unity to everything that we study, even if they seem paradoxical and contradictory. This is why the most beautiful thing you can do when you're reading the simple text of the Torah is pick up Rashi. Because you're like, man, something about this just don't sound right. And then, of course, Rashi's like, well, that's because da 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 da. And you're like, oh, okay, cool. You know, so anyway, and that's just that's just one. You can do that with Bahaturim. You can do that with Ramban, you know, so there, there's like all these different ways. So with the whole flow of marriage, I wanted to get into master plan this week and just kind of look at uh, some of the things with that. But before we do, a quick little um, pass by for Kashrut, because that's this week's Torah portion. Kashrut, Kashrut. Okay, um, page 95 in Master Plan is like an opening up chapter of this, and it talks about the function of the dietary laws. And it talks Leviticus 11, 43 through 44. Here's the point of Kashrut, which if you really think about what Kashrut is, it's considered one of those commandments where it's like there's seemingly no reason for it. There's no reason why a pig is not something we should eat, but then chicken is like, oh yeah, all day, all day. And you're like, they both kind of are like, I don't know if I really am okay with this. And Hashem's like, yeah, but I'm okay with the chicken and not the pig. And you're just kind of like, I, I, don't, I don't get it. You know, and it's just like, okay, but it's kashrut. So Hashem said it, we do it. Naseh benishma, we will do then we will hear. We're so caught up in doing that as we're doing, we finally understand. And you're like, okay. And then all of science starts coming, going crazy, uh, talking about everything with the animals that are not kosher and their, their character, their, their uh, biological makeup and how you can't really kosher slaughter animals that are not considered kosher. And you're just like, oh, okay. Hashem was onto something. And it's like, well, no, they are finally onto something. Hashem been here. They just now showing up, you know. But anyway, um, Leviticus 11.43. So if we go to our uh, Orthodox Jewish Bible here, check it out. Um, where is it? There it is. All right. 11.43. Uh, hopefully it is sharing this. I'm going to hit share again. Okay. So look at 11.43. And 44, you shall not, or you shall not make your nefeshot shekets. You shall not make your soul like abominable. It says here, you shall not defile yourself in the English. With any creeping thing that creeps, neither shall you make yourselves tame, which is the word for impure, with them. That you should be made time thereby so interesting phraseology you shouldn't make yourself impure by them that you would make yourself impure by so if you had a, a commentary to look into that particular verse you should uh check out why it's written that way now obviously we're reading an english translation even though it's transliterated so there's probably uh something that would be uh not quite um extremely accurate like if you were reading from the hebrew text hebrew text is the best way to get the the most accuracy out of your your reading 
So uh, verse 44, for I am Hashem, your God. You shall therefore set yourselves apart as Kodesh. So you shall consecrate yourselves. You shall be holy and you shall be Kadoshim. You shall be holy people for I am Kadosh. I am holy. Neither shall you make your nefeshot to me. You shall not defile your soul with any manner of creeping thing that creeps up on the earth. So it's just really interesting that when you really look at what kashrut is, it's like it's soul work, which some people call kashrut soul food. And it's, it's actually quite accurate, you know, when you really think about it, because Hashem is really concerned about working on our inner man so that when we clean the inside of the cup, we also will get to the outside of the cup because it's only a matter of time before what's actually inside of us makes its way out. And when you think about uh, being in so much Kedusha, so much refinement and rectification of your soul, like it's only a matter of time before it shows in your, in your outward. You know, so when you get your mind right, you get your words right, you get your, your actions right. It's, it's all a flow. And so through our eating, we're like, we're like bringing everything from the inside out, you know, to a whole nother level, which is why over time you'll learn that as you eat more kosher, you'll be able to think more clearly, which will cause you to speak more articulately. And then you'll be able to uh, act more um, modest and act more uh, uplifting and elevated in the way you carry yourself. And it's crazy because the food will be the source of that. So anyway, it says refining the human being. So there's a whole thing here on page 95 about refinements. And then um, this question is brought down in the middle of the page. It says it's in connection with one of the dietary laws that the rabbis asked their famous rhetorical question, does it really make any difference to God whether one slaughters an animal from the front or the back? Think about this in light of what we just start, studied and learned with the temple. Could you imagine the Levites going, oh, you brought your bull and they just sliced the back of the neck and you're just like, whoa, bro, that's not a fit uh, Corbin now, like my sins are totally not forgiven. I'm still guilty. Thanks a lot, man. That was expensive. You just wasted my money and my atonement, you know, kind of thing. Or if they were taking birds and just doing all these obscene things with them, you're just like, okay, so break a protocol, all this kind of thing. Does it really matter? Uh, yeah, it matters a lot because it's not just about the animal. It's not just about the Levi or the, the Cohen who's uh, participating in doing the Corbin for you. It's also about you. It's also about your elevation and refinement and tikkun and all sorts of stuff. So then it says, why then were the mitzvot given? So why the mitzvot at all? Answer, to refine human beings. Cognitive, or what is that word? It was cognitive rehabilitation. I don't remember if I wrote it down in here, but basically what the Torah does, it's like it, it really uh, rebuilds us as human beings. You know that when we ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, 
everything about being a human was torn down, deconstructed. It was blown up. It was run down. It was uh, all the foundation removed. So we, we have this decay. We have this more animalistic bend to our desires and our passions and our purpose in life sometimes, unless we move towards Hashem, walk in the spirit, uphold Torah and mitzvot and things like that. And so this refinement actually restructures us. Better word, transforms us. We have a metamorphosis that takes place. And that's the mitzvot. So the dietary laws are, are really a part of all of that. And it's interesting that that occurs in Parsha. What? Shmini, the eighth day, the, the whole thing about the eighth day and being a transcending creation and all of that. So page 96 in Master Plan, and I'll conclude it here so we can get to our marriage part. It says conditions for kashrut, and in parentheses, it puts fitness. The whole thing about kashrut, it means fit for consumption. When you see kaf, shin, resh, which is how you spell kosher in Hebrew, in Hebrew, it means fit for consumption. And what is that? What is all that about? Well, it gives us four things here. It says, is the kind of animal fowl or fish suitable for our consumption? Is the animal or bird in a fit condition to be used for our food? Horror stories galore of uh, butcher shops that don't inspect their meats and they package it up and sell it. They give a discount, but they still sell it to people. And it's like, dude, this meat is not good. Eh, I know, but I can make two bucks off of it. You're like, okay. So then it says, how is the animal or bird killed? Sometimes when you're partaking of a meal, do we ever really think about how did this animal perish? Because the whole thing with understanding sacrifices and, and something giving up its life so that you can live and be sustained. Um, what, was, what did that entail? This is why one of the biggest things with understanding the Akedah of the Mashiach is so important. How was he offered up for us? Why even any of the things of being betrayed, uh, you know, being abandoned, being called a liar, put on public display for shame. Why are any of those things so critical about Mashiach's offering up? Because we should know that's what sin does to our life. Anytime we decide to go the Avoda Zera route, to, to forsake Hashem, to walk in a path of idolatry, to serve creation as opposed to the creator. Those are the things we open ourselves up to. And the fact that the Mashiach took on those things, he was saying, listen, I would like to take that from you, please, and give you back your dignity, give you back your respect. So this is a microcosm that is taken into account or like a micro detail that is focused on and the food that we eat. And how much do we eat? How many times do we eat? And so we're faced with this 
to say, hey, what's going on? Think about this. Think about these things. And number four, what parts of the animal must be excluded from our diet? Can't just eat the whole cow. You would think, oh, that is uh, being fiscally responsible. And it's like, not exactly. You should not be eating the sciatic nerve. <laughs> and among other things, you need to offer those other things up to the Le Levites and the Kohanim, you know, so that they can have the, uh, the choice parts of the, the food. And then the altar has its choice parts of food, you know, and things like that. So you can't just take the whole thing. It's not just about you. And it's, it's like so crazy when you think about how the Corbinot are actually divided up. When there's a fellowship offering, there's so much food that you can't eat it by yourself. You got to go find somebody to eat it with you if you don't have anybody with you at the moment. Could you imagine being in Yerushalayim, just kind of minding your own business? Some Yid, some Jew comes up to you and like, hey, what you doing? Oh, you know, just shopping, looking around, enjoying the smell of the atmosphere because it's like the Katorid is crazy. And I hear the Levites is like awesome. So would you like to go to the temple with me and eat this food? Or would you like to go over here to this uh, cafe table and eat? Because some of the uh, offerings you can actually eat in the courtyard or you actually eat anywhere in Jerusalem. So like you have like the most elevated, sanctified, holy food, fried food at that because it came off the fire in the temple. So the food was literally fire, as we would say. <laughs> but anyway, like and someone just offers this to you. And little would you know that you're eating a fellowship offering. And all of the, the benefits of a fellowship offering. I mean, if you just study the fellowship offering. So you just ate that. Imagine what that's going to do to your soul. So these are some of the crazy things that are uh, connected to Kashrut. Finish with the story. Page 97. A young rabbi took a position in a town in the U.S. with a very small Jewish community. Okay, little town. Okay, he says nearby was a university with many Jewish students. How to attract them to the community. He hit on the idea of making a falafel evening. So Magin Shainu, if anyone is willing to take that on for us, my goodness, that would be amazing. Can we have a falafel evening? I don't know how to cook falafel, so that, that would work. Not, not work at all, but I can cook waffles. They're already cooked. <laughs> anyway, we can have a waffle night anytime. I'm up for that. <laughs> Anyway, so making a falafel evening. It was well advertised on campus, but when the time came, not a single student turned up. By 11 o'clock, he gave up and started putting the things away. Just then, one student turned up. Overjoyed, he plied him with falafel and beer. When he finished, he asked, what, what, what's all this about? What do you want from me? You Jewish? Asked the rabbi. Uh-huh. Ever heard of kosher food? Yeah, but I don't keep kosher. Stop. Kid is going to a Jewish university. Oh, Sika, no. 
going to a university where there are many Jewish people. He happens to be one of the Jews at that university that does not keep kashrut. He just so happened to partake of the invitation to a place that offered kosher food at a small Jewish community where there's a rabbi there and like putting this on. It goes on to say, uh, yeah, but I don't keep kosher. The rabbi says, I understand, but I want you to do me one favor. As soon as you can, just eat one kosher meal. That's all. See, I don't know if many people know this, but this is the mentality of Chabad and a lot of the Hasidim. Just do one mitzvah. Like they literally have a mitzvah mobile that just goes around like, can I, you're Jewish guy? Like, right, you're Jewish? Okay, let me just wrap some tefillin around your arm real quick. For this rabbi, I was like, let me just eat one kosher meal. That's all you need to do. Just one little mitzvah. There's been other campaigns like get women to just like candles, you know, get people to just read a passage of the Torah portion. Keep one Shabbat, all of these different things. And then it goes on to say, <laughs> someone wrote, it's easy. Yeah, right. So uh, come on, man. Like, this is amazing. To have a rabbi who thinks like that, right? Because it's like, if you are uh, in charge of shepherding a flock, like you have to understand there are many levels to that flock and you can't just expect the same out of everyone because people are at different places in their lives. And just because they're at a place right now doesn't mean that they're gonna be at that place forever. Things can change within a day. We know how quickly things change. Come on, like we saw what happened 2019 to 2020. Now we're in 2022. How quick did the world change? My goodness. How quick does Texas weather change? Come on, man. So anyway, but for this rabbi to be like, look, just get your mitzvah done, man. Get a mitzvah. The student promised, and he was a man of his word on the airplane going home. He asked for a kosher meal, but they didn't have one. Okay. See, here's the thing. So it's easy, right? One mitzvah. So person goes, I just gonna do this one little thing. And it's like, ah, oh, there's no kosher food available. The rabbi said, just eat one kosher meal. I'm choosing right now to do this kosher meal thing and it ain't available. Oh, uh, well, you know, things happen. So let's read. The, the, my point of digressing was, even though it's an easy, mitzvah and the opportunity comes that doesn't necessarily mean there's not going to be a challenge and we all know how sometimes we just set out to do things and then challenges just drop and you're just like bro i'm just trying to fix the sink like why do why do uh the stove gotta start breaking why the wash machine gotta go off why did why the garbage disposal is going i'm just changing the faucet i wasn't even trying to do handyman work and it's not because you messed it up. You're just like, no, I literally just took the cold handle off and like the whole thing just broke. And you're like, oh. so anyway, happened like that with the mitzvah. It says the student promised and he was a man of his word. Okay, didn't have one in New York. He asked for a cabbie to take him to a kosher restaurant. Think about what's actually now happening in this person. 
They couldn't get the meal on the plane. So it's like, oh, I got to uphold my word because my yes is yes. Ooh. Even if you're a person that just honors your word, that is huge. So he was just like, well, I couldn't get it on the plane. Well, maybe I can get someone to drive me to a kosher restaurant in New York. Because, you know, it should be easy to find kosher food in New York. So, Cabby, hook me up, bro. It says, when he got there, it was closed. Oh, my gosh. Bro, how did one little easy mitzvah turn into, now I'm wasting gas money. Wasting, so to speak. When he got there, it was closed. It was a meat restaurant, and he saw a notice <laughs> saying, closed for the nine days. You remember this one time where we refrained from eating meats and drinking wine and playing music? Out of all the times that this person who's never kept, well, I don't know if he never, but at this point, he hasn't been eating kosher. And he goes and gets a kosher meal. And the rabbi's like, just, just eat one kosher meal. And it's like, okay, cool. Little did he know it was during the three weeks. Out of all the times someone can ent enter into mitzvah keeping, during the three weeks. So it's the nine days. It's like closed for the nine days. Like, what is the deal? Can you see how quickly one mitzvah leads to another mitzvah? Like now he's like, I need to plan out and search for kosher food, not just get the kosher food. Now I need to yearn and long to eat kosher. Like, Go from, let me fulfill my obligation to like, why isn't this working? Hashem, what is going, oh, Hashem? Maybe this person has never talked to Hashem before. Now they're like, what is going on? Like getting their attention. That's half the battle right there for all mankind. If people could just have their attention given to, is there something beyond all of this? Like the, the madness in the news and the media and the social media and the technology and the apps and the the busy schedule is there something beyond this and it's just like yes there is now that i've gotten your attention because you've asked that question now we can do something knowing is half the battle gi joe says right so <laughs> while he was puzzling over this he's like nine days an orthodox young man passed by him. So now he got put in the path of an orthodox Jew. Remember why I said being engaged in life, escorting the dead, absorption in prayer, doing acts of kindness. Guess what? Outside of the walls of the yeshiva, when this orthodox Jew is walking around, he's meeting a person who hasn't been eating kosher, trying to get a kosher meal, what is going on with the nine days? Like, why is this even happening? I was minding my own business, going to school, trying to graduate. And now I'm here. So again, with everything not being about us, because we're setting ourselves up to help someone else. Maybe that doesn't always manifest and show up, but we have to remember the, the fact of us actually being restored and built up again is to go out and build other people up. We talked about this being rabbis and rebbezines this past Shabbat. Bring greatness out of people. That's what we're here for. Hashem is bringing greatness out of us. We need to pay it forward. 
This is why Jude, the letter in the in the Brit Hadashah, the uh, the gospel and the letters, and there's one letter right before Revelation. It's called Jude. If you haven't read it, you should probably check it out. So Yehuda is the way you would say it in in Hebrew. Egeret Yehuda, the letter of Jude. At the end, it talks about building each other up in your most holy faith. Like, help people refine themselves. That's what this Orthodox Jew is about to get an opportunity to do. And this other Jew is giving himself the opportunity to be built up because he agreed to this obligation. It says, can I help you? He asked politely. The student told him his problem. Come home with me. Oh my gosh, now hospitality? We just read this in the Sidur, hospitality. Man, okay, so come home with me, said the young man. I'll give you a kosher meal. Okay, so that's just, it's on a whole nother level, man. So as a result, the student became friendly with the young man and his family. It was not long before he became attracted to Torah Judaism and eventually became a fully observant Jew. See the power of one kosher meal. Oh, man. So awesome. Okay, so that's another reason why I love Master Plan. It just has a great job of taking the scope of vastness that is available in Torah, bring it down a little bit, narrow it down, kind of hone it in, give me, give me one little thing, you know? So even if you um, may feel like, my gosh, there's so much to study and read, just this little time we've had right now, that's like a, a big chunk of like, boom, you know? So anyway, and we've only been going for an hour. So it's just like, there it is. That That's like a little uh, capsule of like how to really gauge and benchmark yourself so that you're able to really uh, ingest and, and assimilate Torah into you. Just these things and, and to, to rethink over this, like the story of Kashrut, it's like, it's big, it's huge. Okay. So now marriage, Jewish marriage, page 130. It says this, and God blessed them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Genesis 1, 28. I think it's interesting, this is chapter 33. Just gonna go out there, cause you know, tradition of Mashiach being 33 and how a lot of our discussion this past Shabbat was, what about Yeshua? Was he married? Will we ever know? Well, I don't think we will know, but I'm not the end all be all to things because we know how quickly things can change, right? And there's supposedly a lot of other information about Yeshua's life, the Talmudim, that we don't have access to because it's locked away in a basement. It's been hidden. It's also been tried to, or people have tried to destroy it and wipe it out because there's been a lot of that. This is one of the big reasons why we have the Talmud in writing because we wanted to make sure it was preserved and not lost or forgotten. And this is one of the main reasons why during a lot of the Jewish persecutions, what is one of the main things that's tried to be attacked? 
or people try to attack and, and wipe out and destroy. The Talmud, which is why when you look at the way the Talmud is written, let me see, I'm going to pull up uh, the Hebrew here. It's actually written in a format that is um, fireproof or uh, try to preserve it in its uh, context of being from being burned. So if you'll look at the screen here, let me expand it. There we go. All right. So you see the, the structure of how the Hebrew is written for the Talmud. You have Rashi script and other commentaries out here in the wings. So this is like the furthest away from the main source. Come in a little bit with your Gemara, okay? And other uh, pieces of uh, pertinent information. But right here in the middle, you have your main core and the crux of your text, the straight Mishnah, everything that was handed down through those academies. A lot of this is actually handed down and, uh, and, and part of the, uh, the tradition over time, but nothing on this page is not important. There's everything on this page is important is the, the main thing. So it's not like we can just get rid of this and get rid of that. But chas shalom, if anyone tried to uh, burn the, the pages of Talmud and things like that, if you set fire to the edge of the page, then, you know, it takes time to get to the middle. So this ends up being one of the final things that perishes. And so even the way that the text was preserved, it's kind of like we, we did a safeguarding. We even put a fence around the, the way that it's actually visually set up. So just a little point there as far as how important it is to know about traditions and things. So anyway, so with Yeshua being considered to be 33 by tradition when he was offered up and when he was resurrected, because that all happened in the same year. Wow, 33, what a year, right? <laughs> anyway, and this is the chapter on Jewish marriage. Because we should know that the Mashiach ultimately will be married and will actually have children, like physically have children. So that's another whole thing, at least for myself, I've never been aware of and haven't been taught or shown any resources about. Like the Mashiach has sons who take over the, the throne and reigns over Israel. Like there's a dynasty happening the way that David had his dynasty. So, and Mashiach is a part of the dynasty of David anyway. But yeah, but like, seriously, like Mashiach is king forever, but it's just like Hashem is king forever. And then Mashiach is going to have sons. And it's just like, how do you even put this information anywhere? But anyway, so marriage is all about the building and the perpetuating of lineage. Then you have, uh, there are so many verses for, for marriage. Deuteronomy 24.1, Genesis 2.24, Talmud Babli, Yevamot 63a, Yevamot 62b. Uh, then you also have Proverbs 17, 6. These are pieces of text. These are, these are our sources that help us with some anchors and foundations to Jewish marriage. It says, children's children are the crown of the old and the glory of children are their parents. Wow. 
So a big thing about Jewish marriage is the parents have to be involved. So in Judaism, it's actually upon the father to provide a bride for his son. Which we should know this because what Torah portion is the one that Yitzhak, son of Abraham, gets married in? Parsha Chaye Sarah. Who is the one who really initiated everything for Yitzhak to get his bride? It was his Abba, Abraham. Same thing with Yitzhak to Yaakov, like, son, time for you to go find your wife. And here's where you go to find her. You know, and so to think about how society is today, people are doing this whole trial and error thing known as dating, even though I don't want to paint with a broad paintbrush and say we don't date or dating is for losers and all that kind of stuff. No, please don't get me wrong on that. But we we've lost that art in general in our society today. There are probably pockets of people who still practice that. There are probably cultures that we don't even know about that still do that, cultures we do know about that still do that. But the thing is, the Torah has already laid that out. Like we should not have our children being orphans looking for their, their, their spouse. We have to help them. And if the children are understanding, honoring their parents and that their parents are their glory, you know, when there's the, the beautiful uh, relationship there, it only makes it more vibrant to set up the, the marriage, because that's a new family, a new entity within the congregation, the assembly of Israel. And to know that not only does Israel have to help, but the parents are very integral to that process. And the children themselves have to know that. So I want to relate this back to Nadav and Avihu. They are like so fired up for God and they don't even have their house. They don't have a household because the offering that they would do, we find out a couple of Torah portions later in Akare Mot, sometimes read in connection with Parsha Kedoshim. We learn that that particular offering has to be done by the Kohen Hagadol on a specific day of the year. And that Kohen has to be married because he has to make atonement for himself and his house, which is a euphemism in Judaism for his wife. And so much so that there is a wife in waiting prepared in case the Cohen's wife dies, chasve shalom, during this whole time frame of the Yom Kippur offering. Nadav and Abihu did not have that luxury to carry that out. And according to the one particular commentary that brings down them despising marriage and not being on board with that, do you really want your Kohen Hagadol working atonement for you when he doesn't really want to take care of himself? And think about this in the context with Mashiach, because the whole Garden of Gethsemane thing, like he was preparing himself to be the best offering he could be. The fact that whether or not he was married, on the one side, looking at him as not married, because I, I myself personally anyway, know more about that. Well, who else was not married and offered up as an atoning sacrifice? Yitzhak. 
and he was prepared by his father. The same way that Mashiach Yeshua was prepared by his father to be the best sacrifice. So just a little context there. Marriage is giving is the first section. So the whole thing about marriage is giving. Interesting about Nadav and Avihu, they are so enraptured with Hashem that they forget. It's not just about me, 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 going into the Holy of Holies, going into the deepest, most richest wisdoms of Torah. Who was it? It was Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, uh, Alava Shalom, that is uh, credited with the Musar movement. And this was brought down. What was I reading? There was a source for it. Oh, I don't even know right now. Okay, it's kind of blurry. But it was saying that he even stopped one of his droshes because he was answered a question that he would benefit more from answering than the person who asked the question would. And he was not okay with that. So he was like, this is the end of my drush. Not that I can't answer your question, but it's really not about me. I can give you all of these beautiful, rich treasures, but I'm not doing you any favors. Because will you even understand it, number one? And all this, I mean, it was like a whole thing. And I just kind of was like, I felt like less than this big. I felt like quantum particles at that point. Like when you talk about the seriousness of Musar and how it just tears you down to where you just kind of feel like, man, I don't even, I'm out. I'm terrible. I'm a horrible person. You know, you start like on that route, but in the, in a healthy way, just, I have so much I need to work on basically. And so it was just kind of one of those things where marriage helps you with that. Nadav and Abihu offering up the strange fire. Guess what? If they had wives, probably would have been a different scenario. You know how we got the golden calf? There were men who had to be outright rebellious to their wives in order to do it. This is the other reason why the golden calf is so tragic, because when it was time to get gold, the men were like, oh, yeah, we know where to get the gold, baby. I know what I just bought my girl, you know, my wife. So they go to their wife and she's like, boy, what's wrong with you? And he's like, oh, I just want to do something. Moshe's not here. You know, I know I bought you that. I can buy you another one. She's like, boy, you done lost your mind. You better get out of my tent. You know, you sleeping outside tonight, even though you're still in the clouds of glory. So then it's like, well, fine. I guess I'll find whatever gold tools or, oh, I'm wearing earrings. Oh, let me just pull that out real quick. Start donating. So now we start acting like Abel, because remember Abel, Hevel is his Hebrew word, uh, not Hevel, uh, Cain, Slika, not, not Abel, not, not, <laughs> it's Cain and Abel, Cain is the one who was just like, I'm just going to give Hashem throwaways, Abel, which is Hevel, he was like, I'm going to give Hashem my best, Slika, okay, anyway, I apologize for getting that mixed up, whoa, that's tragic. Anyway, but Cain, Cain was all like, let me go find things that are growing out of the earth. What was growing out of the earth? Thorns and thistles. 
like less than vegetation type stuff. He's like, let me, let me offer that. Meanwhile, Abel, Hevel, he's over here like, oh man, I gave you my firstborn lamb. Like, boom, here you go. All of it. I don't even want a part of it, Hashem. Hashem's like, oh, okay, cool. So we began to act exactly like Cain when it came to the golden calf. Like, let's give our throwaways to create our own God who will be pleased with our offering. Nadav and Avihu, my goodness, I don't like being on this strand of the strand of the commentary because there's so many other more righteous parts to Nadav and Avihu because they say, again, great Zadikim, they're the ones who actually caused the fire to come down on the altar in the first place. So it can't just be that they're all wrong. And this is the other beauty of the paradox of Torah. You can't just go black and white into one side. That's why I want to make sure we stay balanced as I'm speaking about this. So not that I want to try to keep getting off track, but just to say. So Nadav and Abihu are like, oh, let's just do this. Let's just do that. Let's get this. Let's grab that. This isn't even a tool that was fashioned by the people who donated to the tabernacle. However, I am going to use it. Hashem's like, uh, that's not mine. Did you watch that? Is that consecrated? Is that holy and set apart for me? Is that my Taruma? No, that's your Taruma. Oh, okay. So, like, I mean, you start thinking about the crazy dynamics of this. Well, guess what? When you are already training at home because you are married, chances of you being in that scenario are lessened, like, quite a bit. So, marriage is a whole other musar to its own. <laughs> but anyway, so that's the one, the first thing out the gate Master Plan wants us to know. It's not about just you. Like, you got to put stuff out. You know, you got to take into consideration other people. You got to take into consideration just like you process through things. So does other people. And their process is different. You're like, bro, that ma'am, that's not processing. And wife is like, sir, this is processing. <laughs> so, you know, you just kind of think about the craziness of like, Hashem just bringing opportunity of tikkun like a thousand times a trillion to being like, listen, dude, let me help you out here real quick. And also, as you are married to your wife, you'll also get a picture of you being married to Hashem. And my goodness, I can't believe Hashem puts up with me like this. And how much grace we should extend to our spouse and vice versa. Because how do we want to be treated? Well, if we treat our wife any less than we want Hashem to treat us, ouch. You know, so I mean, it's like it, it puts you in this huge bubble of like, oh, we're going to make you holy. We're going to make you holy today. And you're like, oh, I don't like holiness. Holiness hurts. Hashem's like, it's great. It's good for you. You're going you're gonna to shine like a diamond. And, you know, diamonds are forever because we have eternal life. Right. So anyway, what is the aim of marriage in Judaism? It says on page 130 in Master Plan, the living discipline. Oh, my gosh. Living discipline. Do you hear the richness of that combination of words? Living discipline. 
This is the other beautiful thing about us being followers of the Mashiach is like, it's a daily thing. He said, daily carry your stake, carry your tent peg, carry your crucifixion device, your Akida apparatus, as I like to call it, daily. It's a living discipline. Well, the point of Jewish marriage is to bring that in. Did you know that when a person gets married, it's called entering into covenant. But brit is the way that it's actually said in Hebrew. So you enter into covenant and the covenant is known as kiddushin, like consecrated, set apart. There is nothing like this. Okay. When we do the kiddish, we don't ever put, um, you know, water or beer or other random non-blessing drinks in there. We put we put liquid in our kiddish cup that is fit for the bracha, and we use it when it's time for the bracha. Judaism says that when you have a marriage, you treat it exactly that way. Use it for its purpose. You know, like we have a fancy way as human beings sometimes where a tool or something is not available that is supposed to be used to do something like, you know, a screwdriver and we want to use a butter like. It's like, yeah, so you can't just do that with marriage. Judaism, you, you have a protocol, you have boundaries, you have a foundation that's all set up the way that the marriage takes place and all of that. It's just like this huge thing. And again, it's, it's beyond the couple. Like the couple, they have to figure their thing out, right? But the community is around them, you know? And again, the parents, because it says that, you know, the man shall leave his father and mother, so shall the woman, and the two shall become one flesh, you know? So families are having to help build a new uh, soul here, like, which is crazy to think about what an honor it should be, you know, when we help people get married, is we're creating a, 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 new, a new creation. The same way we would do with a person who converts to Judaism. It's like they're being made into a new creation. When someone repents, when someone does a mitzvah and starts doing other mitzvot, we've made a new creation. But marriage is a living discipline. Uh, it says the living discipline of Torah marriage is an ideal environment in which to rear healthy children. There are duties that the man has and that the woman has that builds an environment and a space. Ultimately, when you have a Jewish family, the mitzvah is to have one boy and one girl. So you would end up having the father, the mother, son, and daughter. Did you know that each of those individuals correspond to one of the letters of the divine name of Hashem, known as the Yod and Hay and the Bob and Hay. So you literally manifest the name of Hashem into creation. Ever wonder why families, marriage is under attack, abortion? Don't create the name of Hashem. Don't even complete the name of Hashem if you started on it. Just have the Yod and Hay. Just have the, the husband and the wife. And that's it. You know? Go do other things to that mix. Go add other haze. Go add other yuds. And it's like, there's one way to spell Hashem's name. Obviously, that name can be permutated, but it's still only a yod, only a hay, and a vav, and a hay. Like, 
That's Hashem's name. So then when you look at all of that and how society's like, oh, you could do it like this. Oh, you do it like that. Wipe out the name of Hashem. That's the goal. But Judaism goes, no, establish the name of Hashem in creation. So then it says mentally and morally stable. People that have like disorders, you know, chemical imbalances, things like that. Having a Jewish marriage is meant to help foster and, and, and make a safe space for that to actually rectify and repair it. Obviously, there's, there's uh, things that have to be done with professional help and, and medical things and, and things like that. But, you know, I think back to my younger days as a child where I was like, man, I had a rough day at school. I feel like scum of the earth. Someone bullied me. All these kinds of things to make me else, it, uh, uh, insecure about myself. Well, having to be in a Jewish home which I didn't get the luxury of. I don't know about you, but I didn't. So those things I was kind of left on my own to kind of really do. But with Torah, it's a built-in um, reinforcement to help with that. And because of the obligations of the husband to his wife and the father to their children, the mother to their children, you're creating this whole atmosphere of transformation not just for the man, not just for the woman, but for any children who are in that environment. It's like a, it's like a miniature temple. Because remember what we learned about the temple? When you go to the temple, it changes you. So a Jewish marriage is meant to change you and anyone who's involved in that. So that's one thing. Consciousness of their mission and destiny as Budding members of the community, your aim and your guide, you know who you are, you know what you're supposed to do. A Jewish marriage fosters that. That's the aim of all of the laws of marriage. There are laws. There are literally the how-to people want to know how to have the best marriage. Jewish halakha is the answer to that question. <laughs> If you go by the prescriptions of Torah for your marriage, it gives you everything you need to know. Then it goes on to say, here, obedience is not demanded at the whim of the parents, but as part of Torah obedience, which applies to the parents equally with the children. If you haven't circled or highlighted that, that right there will cause world peace. Because <laughs> the whole thing about, well, mom, you're telling me to do this and you don't do it. It's like, don't tell me what I ain't doing. Because I know when I was growing up, it's like, boy, you better not talk back to your mama. Like, you want to be in an early grave? You want to have your Leviah right now? Your Leviah is going to turn into a ayah, you know, like you out of there kind of thing. But anyway... When you think about the fact that there is something higher than the, the, the environment here, it's like, no, we're not in charge. Actually, Hashem is in charge. We're subservient to him. The man is subservient to Hashem. The woman is subservient to the man. The children are subservient to the parents. We're all subservient to one another. 
So we don't all just get to kind of freelance this thing. And Jewish marriage is like, that's what it's set up for. It's kiddushin, like kadosh. It's a holiness bubble. Now, again, think about this, because, you know, the whole moral stability. Now, Nadav and Avihu, where did they get this idea? I'm just saying a lesson in critical thinking happens when husband tells wife, hey, babe, love of my life, you're so wonderful. I'm going to go do this. And I just wanted to let you know. So I love you. Talk to you later. And she goes, er, stop. Time out. First of all, did you think about this? Did you think about that? That's really crazy. I'm not okay with you doing that. Uh, what's wrong with you? I'm just saying, think about that. If Nadav and Abihu had wives, they probably would still be alive to live out the rest of the Torah portions. Crazy. So anyway, so many things get taken care of with this, the way Torah teaches us to set up our relationships. Then it also goes on to say in section three, functions of sexuality. I'm skipping it. It's not Parsha Tazria Mazora. So <laughs> talk to you later. Anyway, I'm trying to prepare myself for that week because oh my gosh, the Torah got so real fast. Okay. Um, a true partner, section four. <laughs> The selection of a partner for Torah marriage must take into account, above all else, suitability for the achievement of Torah aims. So, you know, husband goes or dad goes to sons like, hey, son, I found your wife. Son goes, is she cute? Okay, dad goes, I don't know. You figured it out yourself. I think I did a good job. That shouldn't be the question. The question is, um, is she suitable for achieving the aims of Torah? <laughs> Which is why there is a chaperone date to make sure this whole thing is like, boom, it's good. This is going to work. This new creation and the new creations that Bezrat Hashem, they make within the Jewish people, like this is going to help bring redemption into the world. This is going to establish heaven on earth. It's going to establish Hashem's name in the world. This is great. This is beautiful. We need this. Yes. Awesome. Oh, she just so happens to be cute. Oh, man. You know, the lady, she loves the man. She's like, oh, he's so awesome. He's so thoughtful. Oh, my goodness. It's like, yeah. Did you you look at the fact of uh, what it takes to study Jewish law? It's like um, Hashem is helping us be thoughtful. <laughs> so, man, you'll find this over time that because of the uh, the, the the battles of Torah study, it opens up all these other recesses in our mind to take us out of caveman into like, you know, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's and um, what's that other guy from the notebook? All of them people, they can move over to the side because Judaism got some things to show y'all, okay? But anyway, that happens. And this is again, the living discipline that happens. It, it just, it starts coming out, which is why Bezrat Hashem, over time, the longer you're married, the better off you Bezrat Hashem become. Because all these different things keep opening up. Like the way we study the Torah portions every year, it's like, oh, we studied Shmini last year. But last year versus this year, what are you learning? Where are you in life now? What, how do you think? What things are you doing? You know, is it different from last year? Because if it is, 
Even if it isn't, Bezrat Hashem, it does become, if anyone needs that breakthrough, we're doing 40 days of the Nishmat prayer. It's coming now. So Baruch Hashem, it can't come any faster, right? But you learn different things that you didn't see before last year. Last year, I was never thinking about what would have happened if Nadav and Abihu had wives. And think about that in the context of 1 Corinthians 7. Like, what? It was just a beautiful, organic um, occurrence, I think, that just happened because the way people were giving input and the way we were looking at the text, Shlomo was really just breaking it down like a, a b-boy. I'm like, dude, I didn't know you could do head spins. He's like, oh, yeah, I've been practicing a little bit, you know, do what I can. It, it was just like, dude, we need to talk about this. Like, come on, man. Parsha Shmini's coming up. Let's do it, you know, kind of thing. So anyway, true partner. So you want a true partner. You want a, a person of emet. You want a, a person who is a pillar of truth. And that's who you want to really be married to. Intermarriage, section five, says it goes without saying that marriage to a non-Jew would be a betrayal. It's betrayal. So imagine this with Moshe Rabbeinu marrying Zipporah. Esther marrying King Ahasuerus. Wow, they got so real. Well, check this out. It says the prohibition ceases. Oh, this prohibition, that whoa, this betrayal is not really so much a betrayal when dot, dot, dot. The non-Jew has been accepted into the faith community by Yisrael or the community of Yisrael by a bet dean fully convinced of his or her sincere determination to adhere to the Torah in its entirety. So later in the Torah, there is the book of Numbers, and there is an individual by the name of Zimri, who is from the tribe of Shimeon. Zimri's like, dude, look at these Midianites. Look at these... Uh, Midian, oh yeah, Midianites and Moabites. Look at these pretty ladies. Forget all that stuff we just talked about marriage. Dude, this guy already was in Kiddushin. He had a wife already. This is tragic, okay? He's a leader of the tribe of like one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Mary has kids. All of that wonderfulness. And he goes, yeah, we're just going to we're just going to put that off to the side. Pretend like it doesn't exist because I got a bone to pick with Moshe Rabbeinu. He married Zipporah. Midianite woman. Like, what is this? So how come I can't be with Cosby? Who does he think he is? He thinks he's better than me. I'm better than him. I'm on his level. My, the gematria of my name equals 613. Because, you know, Moshe Rabbeinu is the numerical value of 613. So if you're saying Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, our teacher, you're literally saying the 613 commandments. So whatever Zimri was going on, and again, think about all this stuff with uh, Nadav and Abihu and the balance that marriage should bring. 
he completely had to go outside of everything in order to do what he did. And then there's an individual by the name of Pancus, who was also a married man, who had a very virtuous and righteous wife. And it was through the connection of Midian, because the way that um, Pancus was brought, his lineage is through one of the sons of Aharon, marrying one of the daughters of Yitro, Jethro. So he had, quote unquote, Midianite blood in him. But the thing is, like we just said before, fully convinced of his or her sincere determination to adhere to the Torah in its entirety. Hashem gave Pincus the covenant of Shalom, which according to some commentaries means he never died. So when we look at the dynamics here, of what is actually going on and the intermarriage aspect, when, Shem, when Zimri took Cosby, it wasn't because Cosby was going to be a person who adhered to the Torah standard, who wanted to manifest Hashem's name in the world. It was actually the complete opposite, completely wipe out Hashem's name, because they weren't focused on building a family, or increasing God's light in the world, and entering it underneath the hoopah and things like that. They took the hoopah and did something else under it. And this is like so, so sad. This is a leader. He's a Nazi, like a tribal prince. And he just goes and does this. So when you think about like, okay, so if he thought he was on that level, but look at Moshe Rabbeinu. So when you compare, not that we want to compare people, compare Moshe to Zimri. Wow, night and day difference. Compare Moshe and Aharon to Nadav and Avihu. I mean, just look at the, the, the crazy connections and levels and layers and all the facets there. Parsha Shmini brings this out. Like we're looking at the one of the most highest and exciting moments. And it's like marriage is, is so key to this. So we can't just say that Judaism just goes, oh, whatever with marriage. Marriage can be if you want to do it. Marriage doesn't have to be if you want to do it. I mean, you can do whatever you want, I guess. You know, be married, not be married. Pray to Hashem to ask you to, or pray to Hashem to give you the, the strength to overcome your, your, your desires that you would actually be able to fulfill in marriage. And when you fulfilled those desires in marriage, the, you know, the section I skipped, uh, you would actually be doing a mitzvah. You would actually be elevating your soul, your soul, your wife's soul. You would be bringing more of Hashem's glory and light into the world. But no, just pray that away. Just go do something else. It's like, okay, can we talk about the balance here? Because many have run with 1 Corinthians 7. They've run with one chapter of a few verses and built whole doctrines and uh, religions and philosophies off of it. It's like you're holier if you're a single person and you can spend all your time with Hashem. It's like, that's not necessarily the way that the Torah teaches us. It's actually a person who is, uh, is conservative in everything that they do, that you're not too extreme. Because actually being uh, in Kiddushin actually elevates you to a higher level as well. It actually can draw you closer to Hashem. It has that potential to draw you closer to Hashem. 
because if Hashem himself commanded marriage, would that or would that not mean he himself is married? Which we know we can't take literally because Hashem is beyond all of this. But we know that the relationship of Hashem to Yisrael is likened to Kiddushin. So therefore, to be antithetical to Kiddushin is to say Hashem and Yisrael is not kosher. It's not something we need to focus on. Oh, isn't that interesting that people who run with this philosophy think that dispensation, like there's a new Israel. It's not the Jewish people. Don't be Jewish. Don't do the Jewish stuff. It's Old Testament, New Testament. It's divorced from itself. So the apples don't fall far from the trees when these things get set up. So we have to remember why the, the number one day, the holiest person and the holiest mitzvah, Yom Kippur, has to do with marriage. If you have the Midrash says for Leviticus, read Akare Mot and the whole thing about the Yom Kippur service, and you'll see that it literally explicitly says the highest part and the most, um, the best part and the greatest part of Yom Kippur is actually when the Kohen Gadol gets home and reunites with his wife. That's the fulfillment of Yom Kippur. It's not going into the Holy of Holies and changing clothes and being all legit, even though you're fasting and it's like you're doing all this super spiritual stuff. You're on this high level with Hashem. You're completely forgiven, made clean, and your, your crimson stains are made white. No, the greatest part about Yom Kippur is that the agent of atonement gets to go back home to his wife. When I read that in the Midrash says... I was like, what are we doing? <laughs> My gosh, man. Nadav and Abihu were like, if I can just get into the Holy of Holies, if I can just ascend all the way, just go all the way up, all the way up, you know, with Hashem, never come down, going up on a Tuesday. Hashem's like, no, when you come up here, you go back down and you go home to your wife. And that's your example to the people that you are over, like you're in charge of. Hence why it's so healthy for shuls to have people in leadership that are married. Because what if people in that community need marriage counseling? Did you know in Judaism, we're actually supposed to seek out our, our bet dean first before we even think about going to secular courts and counselors and all that kind of stuff. We're actually supposed to take care of everything here. Now, wouldn't it be very interesting if you're having to bring marriage situations to a single person who has no idea what that means? Being a father, you know, and you have children issues, you're coming to a person who doesn't have kids and doesn't want kids. How helpful is that? You can read a lot of books about being a great parent but being a parent, okay, you can't even, you just don't even, <laughs> all right? So to the, to the married people at Magi Shainu, the about-to-be-married people at Magi Shainu, the parents of Magi Shainu, kol hakavot to each of you. That means, like, respect, salute, word up, like, power to you, Hashem, bless you, give you so much help from heaven that you just be like, 
Am I in heaven? <laughs> because man, it's huge. It's a big deal. So let's close it out. Halakha. There are two steps in the process of getting married. One, a man and a woman join together for the tasks of life. For the tasks of life. What all that life involves. The other, they begin to accomplish that purpose by founding the marital home. So first, it's like, let's get on the same wavelength. Wonder why premarital counseling is a thing. Wonder why the whole thing about, okay, you get betrothed and then the man goes away, starts setting up stuff. But before the stuff that the man sets up so that the woman can come on in, be like, hey, how you doing? Been missing you. Can't, I'm so glad you're here. All of that. Before they can do that, they already need to start trying to meld and, and become of one mind before they get into the environment. So start getting the decisions made. Okay, so, you know, I'm paying this bill right now. What would you do in this situation? This is how I've been doing. It. You know, I mean, just start getting real practical with it. You know, like, do you have a yard to mow? Because I don't like mowing the grass, babe. I'm just letting you know. It's not because I'm not a man and I don't want to do it. It's just, woo, mowing lawns. That was my, that was my life. I'm scarred. I don't want to do it no more. I'm not scared. I am scarred. It was like, it's crazy the things I had to put up with mowing yards. You know, it's like, just please don't make me mow yards. I love you so much. I'll do anything else. I will clean the baseboards with a toothbrush. Please don't make me mow the yard. <laughs> Come on, I'll, I'll work extra. I'll just get a part-time job and we'll pay some people to trim the yard or something. I don't know. Anyway, stuff like that. But I mean, it's seriously like get real with each other. This is the step of uh, marriage. Like the first step, is where you stop playing games. You stop trying to impress. You like, this is it. This is who I is. This is who I are, okay? Like, not trying to say I won't change because obviously the Torah uh, tells us marriage is a living discipline. So I, I, I kind of know what that means, but so I'm just saying, I, I, I'm, Torah is going to help us, you know, but we're in this together now. And then after that, what does the halakha say? Corresponding to these aspects are two steps by which a marriage is concluded. Kiddushin, which is consecration, and Nisuin, which is the taking up. So this is what actually happens during the hoopah ceremony. So the second step is actually two steps. And then it says the wife, uh, so you take the wife into the home. So the main aspect of the wedding is to make sure that the, the man and the woman actually become one flesh, which is the whole Yehud room. The, they're going to go away. Nobody disturb them. The whole kind of thing like that. That's the purpose and the goal of the final step is to get them into that posture. And then after that, the celebrations continue and all that kind of stuff. So everything is all done. Everything's been built up. Everything's set. Everything's sealed. It's all right. We're, we're, we're done. We're here. You know, it's like when we go into the mikvah, you know, there's all the preparation stage, but we actually do the mikvah, say the bracha, and it's like, boom, it's it, it's sealed, it is there, like we're, we're done, that's it. All right, go about and comport yourself in a Jewish manner, because you're a new creation now. So the husband and the wife, that happens to them, they literally become new creations, born again, forgiven of their sins. They just had a mini Yom Kippur before all of this. So 
yeah. So I mean, like everything just wound, you know. So that, and then it says um, the first. So kiddushin is signified by the gift of the ring. The second is symbolized by the hoopah, which is the bridal canopy, and the yehud when they get to go away and be alone. Bride and groom having a meal. That's the other part of the yakud. When they get to go away and be alone, the goal is for them to also eat. They need to break their fast. <laughs> so obviously we know other things may take priority, but yeah, it's just like, but you, you need to break the fast and have a meal together. Okay. And then it says they need to be together in their own room when they do this. So it's like they're in their own space. They've got it all set up. It's like, boom, it's accomplished. Then there's the written document of the duties of the husband that he has undertaken with regard to his wife. That's also necessary. This is the ketubah. Okay, it's not a prenup, really. It's really kind of like, here's your marching orders, homeboy. Uphold them and all will be well. You really want creation to be good? Happy wife, happy life. Ketuba, I'm so here to help you, my man. <laughs> Hashem is like, don't worry. It's here. It's right here. It's, if you need to hang it up in your living room so that you see it every day, know what to do. Boom. All set. It's your, your go-to guide. Then it says, since every marriage is not merely a private matter, but something which affects the whole, something which affects the whole community, marriages are not private matters. They affect the whole community. Like the whole thing about the the uh, the 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 conglomeration of people, you know how like certain people get along and all these kinds of things. Well, it's like certain couples either boost or pull down the whole community. And conservation that we we have people that pull down the community, right? But the thing is, is marriages are so important that we have to understand they either bring benefit and blessing to the assembly or they tear it down and we have to remember that this is why having the living discipline is important because of what nadav and avihu did the eighth day went from pure bliss to like we have a death in the family we're mourning this is the first day of mourning but this is also the first day of the greatest joy ever and as we've mentioned before, the Zohar says that we have to be at a place where one side of our heart is exuberating joy and the other side is just outright distraught, brokenhearted. Like, and that was the eighth day. And so then it goes on to say it affects the whole community. The marriage should take place in the presence of a minion. Here's the other thing about a Jewish wedding. It takes a minion to validate that thing. You know, they, they talk about doing the, uh, what is that thing called where you go? Justice of the peace, that whole kind of thing. Like, oh, we're just going to elope. Torah's like, uh-uh. I mean, you can do it and get away with it legally, but when it comes to upholding the standard of a shim, uh, no, we don't play games because... Both parties have to know this is not just some flippant act that you're getting involved in. This is not a little thing. This is serious. There was a reason why there was so much festivity at the first wedding ever, which is of Adam and Hava. Pure K. De Rebbe Eliezer talks about 10 hoopas. 
Hashem braiding Hava's hair, the angels uh, singing all the songs like the Levites do in the temple. Uh, and I think it said Hashem was the Chazan as well. So he actually sang the Sheba Brachot over Adam and Hava. That's impurcated Rebbe Eliezer. So you want to talk about setting a bar for a wedding. My goodness. How do you top that? Okay, so then it says um, it is not valid unless it has been witnessed by two independent members of the community. So what if you can't have a minion? Well, at least two independent members of the community that are separate and not affiliated with the couple. That also works too. And these people have to be designated for this purpose. There's a whole thing in Torah about designating people for specific missions and tasks. So it can't just be like, oh, we found two, two people in the street and we, we dubbed them like they're going to watch us get married. Like, no, this, this has to be thought out. Like this part of the community, they know you, they're Torah observant, they're ready to uphold Hashem's commandments and things like that. Last part, blessings are recited under the hoopah, declaring Talk about making a declaration and proclaiming it from the rooftops. It says, declaring in moving terms the spiritual grandeur of the moment and invoking God's blessing for the attainment of the joys and high aims of marriage. So in Parshash Mini, what ends up happening with everything that goes on, there's also the priestly blessing that is recited as this whole ceremony is completed. And this is kind of what's going on underneath the hoopah. We're invoking Hashem's blessing. The other thing about the, the conscious aspect of everyone watching and attending and reciting Amen, participating, the, the bride and the groom as well as the, uh, the officiator, which is called the Meseder. Um, the consciousness there, it draws in all of this spiritual energy and it puts it into the couple. So this is why it's important for us to all have focus. It's called kavana. As we are reciting the blessings with them, as we're saying amen, as the chazan is singing, as the meseder is leading them in the liturgy, like that all is being this huge vessel of brakot and invoking Hashem's blessing and seal on this couple. So again, Setting them up for success. Ah, that is uh, our uh, master plan for this week. We have five minutes of class left. Uh, if anyone would like to say anything or uh, want me to uh, reiterate or clarify any points, now is the time. If not, I'm going to mention uh, a beautiful drop about our Mashiach being our personal Lord and Savior. I'm listening in case anyone's speaking, but I'm going to prepare my source. All right, where is it? Dun, 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 dun. We were reading it this past Shabbat. I think in my um, excitement to show you the Hebrew, I actually moved us away from the page here. But it was in Sanhedrin, 97, or was it 98? 
Yep. Okay. It's further on in 97. Thank everyone for joining me tonight. It's been so awesome to see your beautiful names. Okay. Where is this? Uh, here, I'll open with this because this is from the uh, who, what, when, where. It actually should bring it down over here. It says, <clears throat> we have seen that the Mashiach's name is an acrostic for Menachem, Shiloh, Yinon, and Kanina. That's the Mem, Shin, Yod, Chet, which spells Mashiach in Hebrew. So the name of the Mashiach is an acronym. Marriage can only be done with an other Jew. Correct. Even though obviously we see that uh, other people besides Jews are married in the world today. But Hashem still honors that because remember, our yes is our yes. So even when we verbally declare things, uh, those are actually taken into account by Hashem. So you can't just be like, well, I'm not Jewish, so I don't have to be, I don't have to do my wedding right. It's like, no, you still have obligation. Um, it says a person has to be a concert like me. Is that supposed to be convert? I think. You don't, uh, you don't actually, converts are definitely, yes. Okay, Rubishem. You can marry uh, other Jews. Uh, sometimes there's the, the, um, the, uh, what do they call it? The hesitation or the obstination of like, okay, you're a convert. I'm not really sure I want to involve my family with this. But the thing is, is that it's actually prescribed if a, if a convert becomes uh, part of the Jewish community, that they're a full Jew in all rights. You just can't get married to a, uh, a Cohen or a Levite. But another Israelite, you can. You definitely can marry other converts and things like that. So hopefully that helps. Okay, so it says that Menachem translates as consolation, and in the main, uh, consolation is dependent upon knowledge. Understanding why one has suffered is a most soothing consolation for suffering. One who is bereft can be consoled with the knowledge that better times will come. This is another example of da'at, which is knowledge, known as the main consolation. Thus, Mashiach is called Menachem, who will reveal great knowledge, which is known as Torah of Atik, which brings consolation to us. Shiloh, this is Moshe Rabbeinu, the paradigm of a true teacher, a righteous judge, and Zadik. So the whole thing about knowing Moshe helps us know the Mashiach. There's where that comes in. Yinon translates as Malkut, which is kingship. Rashi explains this alludes to faith. Before one can arrive at the gates of sublime knowledge, one must have faith that such exalted wisdom exists. The Mashiach represents pure faith. So the other thing about the Mashiach is faith. He himself is the word for faith. Okay, I have officially lost my cue, so I will not be able to share from uh, Sanhedrin. Oh, well, Baruch This too is for good. Hanania is from the root word lechanein, which is to plead, indicating prayer. All these concepts represent either the ideal Zadik and leader, i.e. the Mashiach, or the other main pillars upon which Judaism rests. Torah 
truth and righteousness, which is the mitzvot, prayer and faith. The Torah until now revealed yet constricted godliness. When Mashiach comes, the constrictions of sublime knowledge will be expanded to reveal ever higher levels of godliness and take on a newer, fresher meaning. As the Torah of Atik unfolds before us. So the, the cool thing about this is the Talmud was mentioning that when you look at why the Mashiach has all these different names, it was based off of how the Mashiach relates to us individually. So each of us has an aspect of the Mashiach in us so that when we in, interact with the Mashiach, when he returns and when he was here, you know, like the way the Talmudim were, he was interacting with us on that peace and spark that was within us so that when we are declaring who he is, we're actually declaring from that intimate level of knowledge. And it was just kind of really cool just kind of seeing the commentary how the Mashiach is like our personal redeemer. He's that spark of taking us into higher levels and connections with Hashem based off of our level in uh, ability to absorb godliness and to see truth from the word of God. So I apologize that I was not able to share uh, from Tractate Sanhedrin, but um, Bezrat Hashem will get to it one day. What if an individual is married to a non-Jew, non-convert? How would that work? Well, we actually have uh, Kefa's words on it. We also have the fact that there are prescriptions for that within Torah. Uh, we, we actually see that you really want to uh, do what it, whatever you can to encourage the person in Torah and mitzvot. It's a little bit uh, interesting for the woman because the things that the wife does actually draws the man closer to Hashem, whether he's conscious of it or not. So um, just to go on that aspect, but then the man himself, uh, it really takes the wife to really have a, 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 a structural um, fit home to actually be Torah observant. So the man can do what he can and try to inspire and encourage the wife, but he really has the obligation to have a Jewish wife. So you would definitely have to go to your bet dean to get the right prescriptions for how things need to be done, because you can't just go, well, you're pulling me away from Hashem, so we're getting a divorce. You can't just do that. Uh, even when you read Ezra and Nehemiah, how when we got back, you know, we had, there was a lot of people that had to divorce their wives. Well, that only happened if those uh, families did not want to uh, convert to Judaism, because while we were in Babylon, we we assimilated, you know, and so it's just like now we got to come back to Torah. And if the family, if the wife or the children didn't want to do that, you know, the husband and the wife, if they couldn't be on the same page, they would have to divorce. But again, all of this is taken care of through the halakhic provisions that are provided so that no one's just like 86'd out without any kind of uh, due process. So, Brukashem. All right, everyone, I'm going to say the closing bracha. We want Mashiach now. And again, hope you all had a, a wonderful time tonight. And may you have an excellent week. Page 142 has the Hebrew. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Menachah Olam, asher natan lanu Torat emet, 
וחיי עולם נטע בתוכנו. ברוך אתה אדוני נותן התורה.